This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supplies. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. Genda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any size hand as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust. It's actually sharpened and ready for use out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen, and most importantly, since it is a Genda reed knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student reed knife by Genda is the knife you'll want to use as you start your reed making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA all capital letters, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda Reed Knife maintenance kit, Reed Knife sharpening book, cutting block, and Reed tool roll. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're a lot more than just Reed Knives. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Reed Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 17 of Double Read Dish. How's it going, Galit? So good. How's it going over in Missouri? It is good. It's still very hot and humid, but we're... How's your hair? Oh, it, it's good. I got some pomade. I got a flat iron, so I'm doing okay. <laughs> so, um... When we were chatting the other day, some memories came up that I wanted to share on the podcast. Would that be cool? Oh, yeah, definitely. So I had this really fun memory of um, a lesson I had with my undergrad teacher, Bert Lucarelli, who is like one of the most wonderful human beings ever to walk this earth. <laughs> and um, I was living in Connecticut at the time. I was a student at heart. And I went to New York City during the summer to go get a lesson. Um, and I, you know, traveled on the train and then I went to his apartment. And, you know, in the lesson, he was at the time, I was really, really physically tense. So he was working with me on different ways to loosen up. And he was trying this one thing and he had me, you know, put my legs like shoulder length apart and then bend all the way over so that the oboe was between my knees and start a long tone from there and then stand up while I was playing the long tone and I passed out. <laughs> like just what? fell over? I fell over. Like I lost consciousness <laughs> and I fell over. And I came to like it, it was not even like five seconds that I was out, but I came to and I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what day it was. He was standing there holding my oboe. <laughs> and I was like reclining in a chair. And I was like, 
what am I doing here? <laughs> and he was like, oh, honey, it's okay. You just passed out. But I think you're oboe. Everything's fine. Let's go get some pasta. <laughs> it was so funny. Oh, my God. I wouldn't re- recommend, like, that particular exercise, but by by the end of my four years, I definitely didn't have that tension problem anymore. <laughs> but that particular experiment was probably um, not one of the more successful ones. But I regret nothing. It's such a good story to tell. <laughs> yeah, or just, like, put an air mattress behind you while you're doing your long tones, I guess. <laughs> Make sure you catch their oboes as they fall. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of a, a funny memory I have. Very different, but like my funniest memory with my teacher and mentor, Benjamin Coelho, actually happened after I graduated. So I was very fortunate to graduate with a faculty position. And, and that particular school happened to have um, some money set aside for guest artists and that type of thing. And so, of course, I was like, okay, I have to have Benjamin up to do master class recital, the whole nine yards. And um, he came up, and I had kind of romanticized it in my mind as, you know, it's going to be this seminal moment. Like, I was a student, and now we're both professionals, and he's my guest artist, and it's going to be so cool. And, of course, it was. Um, but I wanted to do something special um, for him when he was in town. And I was still getting to know the town, and so I was driving around. And I drove past this restaurant, and I forget the name of it, but it said, an authentic Brazilian steakhouse. (laughs) And um, for our listeners who remember from Benjamin's episode, he is from Brazil. And so I thought, that is it. I'm going to take my teacher to an authentic (laughs) Brazilian steakhouse. It's going to be so cool. I I even So thoughtful. Yes, I Googled it. Um, it had, like, the $4 signs. And so, you know, in a town like that, I was like, okay, it's going to be nice. Um, I was picturing like, I don't know, Smith and Walensky type, like you got to wear a dinner jacket type restaurant. <laughs> and I even told him, I was like, okay, when you're in town, I'm going to take you to an authentic Brazilian steakhouse. And he was like, okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so, um, he comes to town and we go out to the dinner and we walk in and it's obviously a chain. Uh, which is fine, you know what I mean? Like, n- not every chain restaurant is Burger King, you know, it was nice. <laughs> but you wouldn't, like, look at an Italian person and say, I'm going to take you out for an authentic Italian dinner. And go to Olive Garden. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we walk in, and we're like, okay, it's not what I had in mind, but fine, fair enough. And we're looking at the menus, and on the first page of the menu, it has, like, um, the story of the restaurant or whatever. And it's all this stuff about Brazilian cowboys. Our meat raised by Brazilian cowboys, cooked by Brazilian cowboys, served <laughs> by Brazilian cowboys. Oh, no. And we were like laughing about that. Um, and how authentic the restaurant was, obviously, you know. And so then our waiter comes up and he is this blonde, like 16 year old, from Wisconsin, the upper Midwest accent, the whole nine yards, like, can I get you something to drink? You want some Diet Cokes? Like, that <laughs> And so Benjamin, and for people who know him, he's hilarious. Like, he's a jokester. He's so funny. And so he just clicks it. And he goes, 
Oh, a Brazilian cowboy. What a <laughs> sight before my eyes. And starts speaking Portuguese to him. Like <laughs> rambling off like all this Portuguese. And this <laughs> good Portuguese impression, by the way. Yeah. Well, I, I don't speak any or I would give some examples. But this kid was just like looking like, what? And he was like, I don't understand what's going on. And he was like, but you're a Brazilian cowboy. Like, oh, no. And every time he'd come back around and check on us, he'd answer him in Portuguese. And we were just <laughs> like tears streaming down our face laughing. It was so hilarious. And every once in a while, my husband, Chris, will look at me and be like, Remember when Ben spoke Portuguese to the waiter at the restaurant? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. It was hilarious. And my I should have done my homework a little bit more. Like, you know, maybe put your head in before you... Uh... <laughs> Word to the wise. Yeah. Put your head in the door. Oh, that's so funny. That's so funny. See, no regrets. Exactly, and now we get to laugh about it. (laughs) (laughs) So my shout out this week is to my parents-in-law, and uh, this is because my wife and I have been visiting them in Michigan for the past couple of weeks, and we know that I have this big recital coming up, and I've been having to practice a lot. So I've been practicing a lot (laughs) in my parents-in-law's house. And I just wanted to send them a very special shout out because not everybody's mother and father-in-law will be so totally fine with hearing monotonous, repetitive practicing and read making in their house for two weeks during their summer vacation. Um, And on top of that, my mother-in-law hand-sewed a special tote bag for my microphone equipment for double redish. And I'm going to post a picture of it because it's so cool. It is the coolest fabric I could possibly find. It is the loudest flamingo print I could possibly find. It is so cool. And my shout-out is to my mother and father-in-law for being totally awesome this break well you sent me a picture of your bag and it's super cute i was jealous i want one too oh, i told her she should like start producing them to sell she was like yeah so i guess so i guess my shout out is like less shouting out to be helpful to my community and just more straight bragging well uh I'm hoping to be able to make a similar shout out because we already know that our holiday traveling will be to my in-laws house and that will be right in the height of Sequenza performing, gearing <laughs> up. So I'm hoping I have understanding in-laws in the coming months as well in terms of practicing. Oh, it's a blessing. <laughs> What's your shout out, Jackie? My shout out is um, the book Drills by Ula Christiandal, who is our guest for this episode. I was so inspired after this interview got over. And actually, side note about the end of this interview <laughs> which you guys will not hear. This is embarrassing. So we were completely nervous about this interview. It was our first overseas interview. We were praying technology would work. Unreasonably nervous. Unreasonably nervous. Um, It went off like a hitch. You will hear this interview is epic. So inspiring. 
um, after the interview was over and we stopped recording, he was like, do you guys have any, like, questions off the record, you know? And we asked him about pedagogy and that type of stuff. And it was just like, oh, my gosh, so cool. And so we hang up with Ula and then call each other to do some work with Double Read Dish and also just kind of cavell and freak out over how amazing this interview was. And so we get on our private Skype call and are like, oh, my God, it was amazing. I'm dying. I'm dead. Blah, 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 blah. And then we hear, hello? (laughs) We had called him back. It was not a private call. We accidentally re like pressed the the call that we had just hung up from that included him, and then we were just like, uh, sorry, click. Yeah, I think one of us screamed, "How embarrassing!" and then just hung up. So he fully heard us fangirling. We sounded like morons. We sounded like fourteen-year-old girls, but that's okay. Yeah. You make it work. It's fine. <laughs> it's all in service of just being professional people, right? Obviously, we are consummate <laughs> professionals and never lose our cool. Oh, my God. So, anyway, I was so jazzed about this interview, and he talks about his warm-up routine, his practice routine, all of which is outlined in his book, Drills. And I'd heard about it. I'd only heard good things. People who use it, it's like their religion. Um, and so I'd been curious about it. And after this interview, I was just like, okay, I'm going in. Ordered it like the second we got off the line and have been really doing a deep dive into it. And I've been loving it. It's super cool. Um, I've been looking for um, a routine to warm up with. And I've been dabbling with different things and haven't really, you know, settled on a specific routine that I really keep to religiously. And he gives you a lot of good pros to think about in terms of uh, fundamentals. And as someone who's been out of school for, you know, coming on seven, eight years, it's nice to get um, people's thoughts on really fundamental things and just check back in and whatnot. So I've been loving it, and I highly recommend it to our listeners. And um, actually, one of the questions you asked off the record is, does drills work for other instruments? And he said, um, yes, he's had people um, experiment with that and implement it successfully. So yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait to dive into it, too, because I'm also searching for you know, a consistent, everyday fundamentals routine. That'd be really cool to have. And, you know, the way that he talks about his fundamentals or academics, as he calls it, is really, it's really good. And he has some really good points about it. So I'm I'm looking forward to diving into it, too. Perfect. Well, we'll be right back with his interview. Dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities, Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. As authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. In addition, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. 
If you're looking for private oboe lessons but can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit doubleornothingreads.com for good quality and affordable readmaking supplies and accessories, lessons, instruments, and much more. That's doubleornothingreads.com. JDW Sheet Music is an online store that specializes in original chamber pieces for wind instruments. The website offers a variety of music transcriptions of composers like Debussy, Bach, Piazzolla, and Rachmaninoff. Owner and arranger Jessica Wilkins has produced over 60 chamber music arrangements featuring oboe and bassoon. Jessica's works have been performed at colleges across the country, as well as the 2015 IDRS conference in Tokyo, Japan. For access to the entire JDW Sheet Music catalog, visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. We are so honored and pleased to welcome to the podcast uh, the amazing bassoonist, Ula Christian Dahl. Ula, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners by telling us how you started to play the bassoon, about your training and educational journey, and how you got to where you are today? I'd be pleased because um, I grew up with music. Uh, my parents are both musicians. They're both teachers, actually. Um, and when I was a little kid, uh, traveling to see your grandparents was a very important thing. Norway is a rather long country. By all standards, not as big as the United States, but there's some distance involved. Uh, and my grandpa, he actually played the bassoon. Not very well, though. Mm-hmm. And grandpa <laughs> didn't really like it, so he actually had to play in the bathroom upstairs. <laughs> particularly had some hatred against the Weisenborn studies. I do not know why. <laughs> saying, oh, those again. And off, uh, upstairs he went, and he would actually sit on the toilet with a, with a seat strap uh, and play his Weisenborn studies. And he also had like a standing ashtray for, you know, to, to get the air going in between. So I was a little kid, and I thought this was fascinating. And I was laying in the front reading my cartoons, and well, I guess I got... Close to the instrument, and when I was a little young, you know, young, started piano, which was boring. Um, I wanted to move to bassoon pretty quickly. But my fingers weren't uh, big enough, my hands weren't big enough. But my parents picked up on this, and they said, you know, you, you really should play bassoon later. And I actually got the first bassoon I got was from my grandfather. It had a very distinct smell of tobacco, oddly enough. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, a very nice Adler Sonora uh, was my first bassoon. Uh, and I played this. And I had the fortune growing up in Stavanger, uh, which is southwest in Norway. It's the oil city. So we had a sister association city with Houston, Texas. Um, so there was quite a lot of money in my old city. So they had a good music school. Uh, and I had uh, the principal bassoon of the Stavanger Symphony, Robert Rönnes, also a difficult name to pronounce, I guess, um, mm-hmm. uh, had him teaching me in the beginning, which was a great start because he was very serious. And uh, for a lot of Americans, he's been to many of the IDRS things, and he's published a lot of music, and is quite a, a specialist. So I had an incredibly serious start with the instrument. I could play ensemble, I could play youth orchestra. Mind you, this is the fourth largest city of Norway, but it's only 300,000 inhabitants. You know, that's like one of those uh, things in front of Houston, right? So it's uh, my country isn't very populated, but music was serious, so I started there. 
And my teacher, he studied with Roger Bernstein in Geneva. So it was very natural that I would continue there. Um, also, we had a very famous other Norwegian bassoonist at the time, Dag Jensen, which was also very attractive uh, to go to study with. So I started off in Geneva, did two years with uh, Roger Bernstein, fantastic man, learned a lot about how, uh, how a bassoon should work in orchestra. And I have to say, I've kept a lot of his teaching also for my own teaching these days. Um, and then after two years in Geneva, I did very shortly also in Hanover with Mr. Jensen, Doug Jensen. And I remember the other fellow students were quite uh, jealous because I could actually talk to Mr. Jensen in my notebook. <laughs> Mr. Jensen is a guy that doesn't say very much, especially in those days. So they were kind of jealous that I got him talking, like full sentences. So they were. it was a very um, nice time in Hanover at that time. I had already won a job in Malaysian Philharmonic, which was my first job, which was just by chance. Uh, Bernstein also said, would you like to do this audition? I said, yeah, I, I can do it to train. And I actually ended up getting the job. I went to Kuala Lumpur for two years um, and had a great time, really. Lovely international orchestra sponsored by Petronas, the Malaysian oil company. And they had their Formula One team and they had their orchestra. So it was, uh, I was actually hired in the oil industry, it said in my passport, which was very funny because I'm wow. And most people in Stavanger are in the oil industry. So <laughs> uh, it was, was a, a funny link. So I stayed there for two years and then I moved as principal bassoon to the Danish radio in Copenhagen and had a great time in Danish radio. It's a great orchestra. Um, very proud to say that the two principal jobs are now held by two of my students. But more about that later, which is very nice. They're sort of, you know, keeping the chair warm. Um, I stayed three years in Danish radio, and then I went to Cologne Radio, where Doug Jensen used to be the principal bassoon. So we have a lot of links somehow. So Doug Jensen left the Cologne Radio um, to go teach in Hanover. And when he went to teach in Hanover, I started studying with him. Um, then I went to Kuala Lumpur, and then I went to Danish Radio, and when I came back and won the job in Cologne, it was still free. So it was seven years later, uh, and then I was very fortunate to get this great job with the Cologne Radio, and I kept that for 13 years, and in the 11th year of my tenure there, I auditioned for the professorship in Mannheim, uh, where Professor Alfred Rindersbacher was there um, before me. And I was given the job, but I was a little unsure because I was very young at the time. Well, young, young to become a professor, German technically-wise, I guess I was 32, uh, which is a little early to get all those gray hairs. So um, I was a little bit in doubt. So I asked my great orchestra in Cologne if I could stay on for a couple of years just to see how it, how it goes. It's hard to know. Um, but it crystallized itself that this could be a very, very fruitful and good thing for me to do. So uh, after 13 years of Cologne, I quit Cologne Radio and I started teaching full-time as a professor in Mannheim. And I have to say, I haven't regretted uh, starting as a professor uh, teaching ever since. Awesome. We did a call for questions on all of our social media and got so many. I'm hoping we'll be able to incorporate everyone's questions Um quite a few people wanting to know about practicing. So we're going to combine um, the questions of Ritika and Brendan, um, who want to know um, 
how long you practice in a day, how you split it up throughout the day. Um, you've spoken before about the importance of practicing and how you include it um, in your teaching. Um, so they're curious about the general outline or blueprint to your approach to practicing. Absolutely. That's um it could be uh, in the direction of, of promoting an, an article that I've uh, worked a lot on, but uh, I guess there's no way around it, really. Um, I have, with my partner, worked on a book called Drills uh, that we published about, I think it's about five or six years ago, uh, which is an extensive book about the, you know, it's basically like an encyclopedia. No, that's a difficult word for me to say, mm-hmm. encyclopedia. Encyclopedia, mm-hmm. uh, which goes through posture, breathing, um, air support, tonguing, vibrato, all the components, um, where I try to offer a good, clear view of how I see these things and how what they are, what they do, and mostly important, how to do it. And the book is very descriptive about this, uh, giving particular exercises for how to achieve these different things. Um, the drill system is also something that I've been using for, I think, about 20 years now. Uh, I still use it, much to the annoyance of my students also, <laughs> because we actually have drill Olympics in Mannheim where they have to stand in a ring and they have to, we have two pair of die and they have to play in the different tonalities and everybody <sighs> has to do this, uh, which is uh, challenging. Uh, one mistake is two euros, and we have a very cute little piggy bank, but it doesn't work. <laughs> and it's the same. It's just the piggy bank works for speaker keys not being used, wrong fingering at the wrong time, and if you did something wrong in the drills, then there's money on the piggy bank. But, of course, that goes to the class, <laughs> but not to me. But I, I'm very meticulous, actually, with my practicing, um, which I think is a very healthy thing as a musician. I think one very often in Europe you, you define musicians saying, well, this is a person who has stopped practicing or this is a person who still practices. And it's pretty easy for me to see in which category you want to be. So um, I use uh, something called a reed warm-up without the instrument where I warm up air pressure, where I warm up my lips a little bit for embouchure, where I warm up tongue points and a little bit of control. And then I would go to the instrument but to read on, I would use an exercise that we call dig out. Every Mannheim student knows this very well, that you place a note, you take your tongue down. This gives more darkness to the sound, but also a certain amount of flatness. And then you would support the sound up to pitch. And then you have a very big and boomy sound. And then you would add a little bit of side muscles, like in a diminuendo, just to focus the sound. And that's the starting point where you would actually play a Clark exercise that we all know from the trumpets, just to have a pattern, um, where you would actually start with this embouchure and start with this sound and slowly increase it through your instrument. And that I do chromatically. And then I would go into the drill system where we have certain exercises that we do in one tonality per day, which is basically consisting of um, synchronization, scales, um, arpeggios, but also drill three, which is like an attack exercise, control exercises, and is rounded off by a flex exercise that takes, takes the tonic of the day and goes half step down, half step up. I think Hertzberg has a very similar exercise 
we turn it around a little bit to make it a little more uh, um, sportif, we say, in the end with the slurs. Uh, but it's very similar. And so basically you have a warm-up thing with the reed. You have going through the instrument chromatically with certain exercises. Then there's a big stone, a brick in your technique that you lay every day. Say today is C major. And we put that in, do, go through the exercises. That, um, the control exercises are only done on the tonic in the scale. Rest it would be too time-consuming. Um, you round it off by this flex exercise. And the last thing I would do to complete the tonality is actually to play a scales and chords milda from beginning to end in the matching tonality. Very slow, but very controlled. So basically having one foot in your academic control and one foot into the creative part of your playing where you start phrasing and doing things slightly more alive. But that's the teaching approach that we have for these uh, basic things, which is very, very rigid, uh, but it gives a lot of results. Um, it also gives you a very clear way of how to start your day, where a lot of students think, well, I have so much to do, where am I going to start? So this gives like a, a slice of all the things you need to do. It gives a slow but steady progression. That's amazing. The yeah. Olympics, I'm just... Like, oh, man, I would love to see that sometime. I just would love to be a fly on the wall. (laughs) It's actually very funny because the class is very international. So then there's a lot of um, people come from different places. And it's nice to have some kind of unity that everybody's having to practice this uh, system. And we had quite a few French students uh, coming from Lyon. Great class in Lyon. It's nice that they want to come. Um, and then we had this thing about the Olympics, uh, saying, okay, you need to bring some pocket change because one mistake is, you know, uh, two euros. And one of the French boys said, oh, do you accept a credit card? Who <laughs> <laughs> was kind of prepared in the wrong way already. <laughs> you know, which is, uh, and I have to say, that's a, a big blessing teaching the class in Mannheim. We, I think I wrote that also. Now there are 16 bassoons and there are 14 nations this semester. Wow. Which gives it an incredible flair of variety and people being from very different places. I hear the cooking parties are very good, but I'm never invited. (laughs) (laughs) That's good, mate. I have a question about um, the regional variancies in approaches to the bassoon from all of these different countries, you said 13 different countries where your students are from. Um, how do you address that in terms of sound concept and um, cultural changes in your pedagogy? Great question, because um, that's one of the biggest things we do, because a lot of thing, a lot of time, also because of my talk earlier with the drill system, People might think that, oh, you get squashed into this little cube and you have to do it this way and there's no other way. Actually, it's very individual because my biggest um, challenge is to actually keep the individual signature of every player as intact as possible. And this is a beautiful thought from Roger Bernstein that I've uh, really incorporated in my, my, maybe also in my playing, but certainly in my teaching, that, um, you know, everybody is individual, and one should try and increase the capability of the player. One should not try to erase their their signature. And very often this sound and uh, that kind of approach is very, very um, individual. I mean, the inside of your mouth is just as individual as your fingerprint. And why would one not try to keep that? Of course, I'm also obliged to try to get people jobs and 
you know, if there, there are certain things that we need to work on with the sound, I do incorporate that. What's very funny is when you have a very strict academic system like you have with the drills, um, it basically uh, improves people's capabilities. And the inner voice of the player actually stays more or less intact. So you are improving how they play the bassoon, but you're not really erasing anything that, you know, they bring. Mm-hmm. And there's another technique with this that I do since I'm so strict with the with the basics, with the excerpts, and you know for how to get a job. The repertoire I see very relaxed on. So when we have our class concerts, uh, the students are preparing their pieces without me, and this is deliberate. They play with their. We have two great pianists for the class. They play with them. They're both Japanese. They couldn't be more different. Uh, one is from the north. One's from the south. Great ladies, both of them. And the students work with them, not with me, with the pieces, and they present the pieces in a way what they think is correct. And this is great for me. I need to know who they are. I need to see who is behind this bassoon and how do they actually want to play. Of course, there are a few times when I say, are you out of your mind? (laughs) At least it's a fresh cut of what it is they want to express. So I think that's, if we can call it a burger, uh, you know, the technique on the top, or no, actually, better picture is the, the salad bowl. I, I've used this several times. The big salad bowl uh, is my responsibility, you know, developing a, a sound and firm technique, sealing all the holes, the cracks. But the salad, per se, is just as much the responsibility of the student, collecting mm-hmm. certain different ingredients. You know, some people like artichokes. I hate artichokes, but that is up to them. So if they want this in their salad, Fine, and we can sometimes, you know, collect uh, ingredients for the salads together, or I send them out and say, guys, you need to listen to more concerts, you need to go to uh, listen to more things, uh, or I say, you know, why don't you don't practice where they go for a walk? Yeah, that also happens. But the third component there, which combines the salad bowl, the salad itself, is the dressing, the vinaigrette. Not necessarily ranch, but... Um, <laughs> Which is very nice, actually. But um, <laughs> what what we do need is, from a teacher point of view, to be able to combine the technique of the salad bowl with the ingredients of the student and the addition of, you know, the odd thing that I might put in with the vinaigrette or balsamic vinegar that you put together. And like that, you will have you will have technique, you will have ideas, and you will have something that is individual and binding all these things together. And that's where. Of course, the, the salad from, uh, from a Spanish student to uh, an Australian student to a Scandinavian student, I mean, the salad does vary quite a bit. But little does it matter if you're able to combine these things for them in their individual way. Keeping on the topic of pedagogy, you know, I feel like our interviews, we interview these amazing musicians and we spend probably 90% of our time I don't know if you agree, Galit, picking their brains on how to, you know, advice on how to play like them or how they play like they do. Um, Mm -hmm. But you are so known as a pedagogue. I mean, of course, a performer, but also as such a successful pedagogue. I'd love to, you know, ask if you have any tips for teachers on how they can find their most effective method or maybe even how you stumbled upon your approach to teaching or maybe it was very organic but um i'd I'd love to ask advice on approach to private teaching and you know get out of our habit of just asking about performance sure 
No, I have to tell you, uh, I, I was blessed, like I said, with with uh, two pa- both parents being teachers. There was uh, there's certainly uh, some genetics that you you have an interest of passing on knowledge, and you have an interest of cracking the pedagogical code, or you know being a good problem solver. But I also have to say, when I started in Danish radio, uh, that's when I started teaching because it's quite natural if you get a good job, people have an interest and they want to come and have a lesson to see how does this guy play. Um, and then I started teaching, and I was incredibly fortunate to have two young Padawans um, at the time. One was Eudun Halvorsen, and one was Fredrik Ekdal. They're both respectively solo bassoons now in the Danish radio and in the Swedish radio. And I had these crazy young boys, uh, and I said, why don't you try to do it like this? And they were so talented that they could do it right away. And I thought, wow, this is easy. Teaching is easy. <laughs> Do it like this. And what it actually gave me was some kind of confidence saying, okay, what I say seems to work. How would I know that my teaching approach would work if I had no kind of results? Everything is linked to a result these days. And you can say the most beautiful things, uh, but if it doesn't uh, lead somewhere, then it has no value. So I was very fortunate having these two young boys in the beginning, and that sort of fortified my approach and the way I was describing a lot of the basic things. Because I have to say, um, there were quite a lot of holes, uh, basic-wise. Uh, also, when I grew up, we had an amazing influence from American brass players because they were talking about it a lot. They were Arnold Jacobs is a man that we all respect and we all know. And that's uh, an incredible player and pedagogue who was able to really put words on things that we needed to know. And since when I started in Malaysia, I was uh, not particularly busy in the orchestra. We were we were a section of four, so and I was still relatively young. I had a place in Dagensen's class, but you know, going to Kuala Lumpur, Hanover isn't really around the corner. Uh, so. <laughs> I had to spend the time very wisely, and I actually tried to teach myself quite a bit. How are these things? How does this work? How does one um, make this kind of approach? So for teachers, it's very important that you find um, your own way of trying to do things, but it needs to be linked to reality. It needs to be something that people can grasp. Uh, and that's also where I got lots of help in the drill system from, from Caitlin, uh, who was so good at you know, putting this into a bouillon or a consommé or like narrowing things down into sentences that people could say without losing their breath. And it's so important having stuff that people can grasp like that. So for teachers, um, go a little bit outside your instrument. Seek information from other instruments. That's incredibly important. And build your style and build your way of doing uh, teaching based on something that has to do with proper academics, with building up the character of the player and trying to keep as much of the individuality of the person behind the instrument all through the process. It's so important. And in the end, for every audition, we are looking for a musician that happens to play this particular instrument. And I don't think... uh, I think that's what we have to go for in the end. So... I had this time alone in Kuala Lumpur where I I was doing a lot of research. And when I came to Copenhagen, I had already chewed over a lot of these issues that I wanted to be able to say. I wanted to be able to to demonstrate. Um, And when I come to Copenhagen, I got these great uh, guys to come for lessons. I actually had some tools. I actually had some things I could 
get them to try out. If I would be improvising like that, that would be very hard. So the two years in Kuala Lumpur were pretty good for that, I have to say. Um, keeping in the pedagogy track, you gave us some hints on how you run your studio class, and I'm curious about how you approach teaching read making. And um, do you have a read class? I gotta say we're very fortunate in the studio in in Mannheim because we have um, my predecessor. Is that the guy who was before me? Yeah, I mm -hmm. guess that was uh, Alfred Rindersprache, a very famous uh, German professor. And since he was famous and successful, they kept upgrading his studio. And they kept uh, giving him, you know, machines and instruments and stuff like that. So we actually, with the contract that I have now, um, is I'm the main professor and I teach bassoon. I have an assistant, Stefan Krings, who is an amazing contra player in Cologne Radio, my former orchestra. And he also teaches reed making. And uh, so we basically separate those things. And we have three complete sets of read machines for the class, two Riggers and one Michel. We have four contrabassoons, which is pretty incredible. And we have about, I think, 12 to 15 bassoons for hire for the, for the class. Wow. And many of them are, are really great instruments. So we, we have, an incredible instrument park or for these things and that makes things very much 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 easier of course but uh, it's also a lot of responsibility left on the students they have to meet up they have to do their read stuff we have um, now exclusively for the class um, a particular way of making reads which is from my uh, read maker it's a guy called Simeon Popov not related to the Russian bassoonist uh, but he has made reads for me all through my career um, and now we've had the chance to invite him to Mannheim and to come and show his style. He's uh, an old guy, and we managed to lure him out, but he had a good time. So he was sharing off his uh, incredible knowledge, and uh, we made shapers and dorns matching to the system that we have. But I also thought it was a very nice thing to do that it's kind of a Mannheim exclusive. So this is for the class. If people can they get into the class, they will also have access to this kind of knowledge, which is... You know, today we are, we have a world where everybody's concerned about sharing, uh, and it's a lovely thing, but we also have to respect people's legacy. And this is his whole life, and he was a rebuilder his entire life, and he's uh, given me the, the chance to pass this on to some of my students. But then, you know, with all the respect we have for him, we want to keep it within the class also. Mm -hmm. So we got a question from listener Stieg Henriksen, who oh. wants to know, um, when you were young, would you rather play games on the computer or go home and practice? And we thought we could maybe piggyback on his question um, with some of our typical questions, um, which is, um, when did you decide to pursue music professionally, and what advice might you give a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? It's very funny. Stig is a, uh, he's a classmate of mine, uh, from, oh. from school. And, uh, which is really sweet that he writes, um, uh, because that was an issue because we were good friends and, uh, you know, he would try to lure me out and we can go and play games at my place and I would very often <laughs> practice. So that's very sweet that he actually remembers this. And there was, there's a certain amount of diligence that you need to do. Um, since my parents were both uh, teachers but also uh, musicians, 
there was this thing about, okay, if you, if you get a new bassoon, and at the time, of course, I, I remember getting my, for my 16th birthday, I got a, a new Kushner, and that's a lot of money, uh, of course, and it was a great, special moment and there was flowers in the bell and everything but also there was it was connected and my parents said you know if this is what you want to do you need to do it properly it has to have some kind of logic to it if you want to be good you need to practice so i guess there was a regularity of practice quite early but it was also very highly motivated from the social fact of meeting people um, playing a new youth orchestra and actually, like I said, we had this uh, sister city association with Houston, Texas. My first trip overseas was actually to Houston where we played with the woodwind octet for Phyllis Petroleum and for Conoco. And yeah, I still remember the fajitas. That was my first introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I could not get enough of that. Um, and I, very sweet, I remember, but, um, it was, yeah, and he has a point because your childhood is, of course, very important for everybody. But it was pretty clear already for me um, there was one very crucial moment that happened. I was elected to join the Jeunesse Musicale World Youth Orchestra. And I think I was 15 or 16. I can't really remember. But this was an amazing change in my perception because... I came from Stavanger. We are a small city. There's the whole world out there. And they chose me to go and play with this youth symphony. And, of course, that really changed that I thought, wow, maybe maybe I actually have something to say. So um, I joined the Jeunesse Musicale, had a great time. I still stay in contact with a lot of them, and actually quite a few of them I've worked with in my orchestras uh, through my career, which is very sweet. But um, for the young, aspiring student, yeah, it's uh, there's a multitude of bassoonists out there, but through uh, really focused practicing, you can go so far. And, I mean, what I also try to teach my students and also professionals who come, if you can have a headline for everything you do while practicing, what is it that you want to achieve with this? Am I working on fingers? Am I working on tongue point? What am I doing? It's what uh, good old Rostropovich said. You know, the more things you put into the soup, don't forget the casserole. So, mm. I mean, it really needs to be focused. You don't can't spread your focus out too much or else it's going to be a mess. And that's where the, the drill system was, yeah, basically written for me, and I'm a guy, so uh, the focus is relatively limited. Can't do too many things at the same time. So... Uh, it's built in that way that you can actually, you, you, you build, you keep, and you add, but you keep repeating the step you had before, what, before adding something else. Especially with the, with the read warm up or with the, with the digging out exercise. So in that way, if you have a slot of academics in your day, if you have a slot of bridging your technique, like with a study, going from academics to being creative, and the third and most important part is that you have to play and you have to be free and you have to enjoy what it is that you do. I think that balance is great. So you have super focused academics, you have a bridge going between the academics and being creative. And then the third part is to play, which we all know spielen uh, in German or Jouvet in French uh, is a game. And this is so important to keep the musical flame alive by playing and having fun, and this is basically the reason why we started this all. So if we, even if it's very serious, also in Mannheim, that component needs to be a part of your day, or else, uh, yeah, one digs too far down, and it's difficult to get out of the trench. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I would like to ask a question posed by one of our listeners, Axel, who says, I have struggled for many years with the quality of pianissimo playing. I tend to choose the very easy blowing reeds, which I think gives the most flexible and alive pianissimo sound, but the attack of the pianissimo tone is not as secure as on a slightly more wind-heavy reed. How do you deal with this dilemma? Yeah, I got to say, this is also very sweet. Axel used to be my contrabassoon colleague in the Danish radio. So how sweet is that? that he has wow. <laughs> and he takes his time to write the question like that. That's very nice. Um, and what I can say about that, this is, of course, always an interesting structure also between the American style, European style. We always say it in one, in two big lumps. There's no such thing as a American style or a European style. There are so many different ones. So where I find it also incredibly important to respect both sides of this. Uh, However, what he's addressing is saying, okay, to produce the softest, richest, or softest and, and sort of most alive piano sound, he chooses to have uh, free and light reeds. Yeah, that's an approach where, of course, the, the, the softer dynamics uh, are favored. The big problem there is actually when to start them. And as we all know, in the orchestra, we're very often not in charge when we can start the note. Uh, it's usually the guy in the front with the white stick um, who tells you when to do it. So uh, the thing is what we have to practice a lot, no matter what kind of reed setup you have, whether it being a heavy blown reed or a light swinging reed, is that you need to practice your tongue point so much that you're able to play the note or release the note, which I like to say in my kind of teaching, exactly when everybody else wants you to. Um, and there's a special technique for this that we've been using. Um, we call it uh, half-stop exercise. As we know, double read is a double read. Uh, and th this exercise you can do on a high C, the Rhino Spring C. You would play the C, you would dig it out, take your tongue down, support up, and you will close on the sides, like focus the sound. And then very slowly raising your tongue only to touch the lower blade as little as possible. If it's hard to do, you can actually say, I, 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 ah, throw the tongue down and slowly raising that sound up to the I, 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 I. And when you touch the lower blade, it actually speaks. And you can get the most smooth pianissimo tenuto in this way. What you then do to continue, you take that point, once it's completely smooth and tenuto, then you close with the same angle, also the top blade. And like this, you have the point of the reed where most of the air goes through with the least amount of disturbance. And this is what we call the tongue point. So you think about our repertoire, how many notes would it be, how many solos would be nice to start with a half stop, that there is a little bit of air actually going through the reed and we can actually decide when the note comes. Sherazade, great, pathétique, track four, quite a few. So practicing that minimal tongue point actually um, balances out whether it is a light or if it's a heavy read. It takes quite a bit of practice um, to find this point, but once you find it, it's some point that you can have as a reference later when you practice. It takes two or three minutes every day, find the tongue point of the day. Changes a little bit, but once you have that, it's an incredibly secure way of releasing the note instead of attacking the note. Mm. Mind you also, when you have the, the tongue at an angle like that, the attack per se is much smoother, it's much rounder. 
you stop with the tip of the tongue, it's a lot of da, a lot of ping to it, mm-hmm. which we try to avoid. Then the criticism of this style will say, well, then everything's going to be really smooth and really round. Yes, but the style involves a lot of, um, we play with relatively high air pressure, and the air pressure then balances out the lack of clarity from this kind of attack. So we thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's, um, for Axel, um, that's the particular exercise that one needs to do. I mean, one plays the note, one digs it out, one plays tenuto, then you have that smooth tenuto sound, then you do half stops, and in the end you do full stops, and then you're actually totally in control of when the note starts or not, which is quite the blessing. Of course, you need a read to sort of uh, respond, but I think it's very interesting working so much with the technique and actually saying that, okay, the reads will change no matter what, especially when we're on tour. If you fly from Frankfurt to, to Sapporo, uh, it's very cold in Sapporo, and you go to Tokyo, Tokyo is very humid. If you have to play Shostakovich 7, you can't really sort of blame the read, can you? You have to make it work. And that's where a lot of the, the form that you have as a player is so much more important than the actual read for that kind of perspective. So mm. there's a lot of exercises going through that here. Sure, we spend time on reads as well, but it's incredible how bad of a read you can control if you're in really good shape. And of course, if that's the constant and the read is a variable, that's a lot better setup that your reads are the constant and your body is the variable. You are speaking to my soul right now. Yeah, <laughs> this is great. I just want to sit down and practice right now. Um, Isan wants to know, when you start learning a new piece for the first time, uh, what is your process of analysis? What do you start practicing first? Great question. Where is he from? Um, He didn't say. Isan. That's a good one. Well, it's just interesting to see where he comes from. But um, to get a new piece, um, yeah, what you do or what I do is to find, I make a frame. The frame is, uh, who's the composer? What's the era? And what am I supposed to do here? Is it a concerto? Is it a chamber music piece? Is it a symphony? What is it? What is my role? And then, most important, which is also a very classic Mannheim way of studying, is that you, you find the blueprint of the phrasing that you need to do all the time. And we have ways of doing this. Um, then you look. And you can sing through it and try to find out, okay, where, where do I want a phrase? Um, say we do the Mozart concerto. Okay, so you, so you have a, you know, you will have a thousand ideas already because everybody told you what to do. But if you have to erase that and say, okay, what is it that you want to achieve with the first phrase here? Um, and then you have an idea um, of where you want to phrase. And then comes this incredible important middle part where you actually link your idea to air and to pressure. So then that's what we do very often. You put your tongue behind the teeth and like like shushing on your on your siblings. And you can actually vary. Kinda of hard to hear on the podcast, but if you play more or less, um, it's aud- it's audible and it's also noticeable in the body. And then we would actually go through the phrasing just like that. If it's the beginning of the Mozart concerto, which combines pressure combines air in motion and an idea in the reversed order. Then comes the stage where you actually go to the instrument and then practice like that. So you, you do it like in three levels like that. And then the, th- the, the three levels would be first, 
without any kind of articulation to see that you get your line through. Second stage would be adding tenuto point to have as little interference as possible. And the third is set it free and enjoy it. But then you're actually then playing on something that was an idea, something that has a form, and something that is linked to your physical way of playing. Mm -hmm. And that is a pretty secure way. And it also, you know, in that way you can practice a lot of things dry also, which is good. Listener Kevin um, would like to know, when choosing a bassoon, what is most important, the brand and maker, uh, new or used, or how it feels when you play it? Great question, because there's a lot of controversy there also, of course, with the yeah, makes and makers and deals and who knows what. So it depends. Um, you have to think ahead. Is this an uh, instrument that's going to be with you all your life? Is it an intermediate? Is it a stepping stone instrument? Is this an instrument that you're going to have just for fun, to be a, you know, a happy amateur, to do these things? What are the costs involved? Is this something you decide upon? You know, it's if you if you want to go uh, all out and, and, and try to get a, a brand new heckle and you're basically only playing in the wind band, uh, is that really what you need? You need to, to find some kind of balance here. And I think um, what's very important is to find an instrument, A, that speaks to you, that is an instrument that you do. You've got to have some kind of crush on these instruments. Who wants to play on something that sounds nice? And that you say, oof, well, maybe in 10 years this can be great. I mean, that's, I don't think that's going to cut it. So finding out uh, who you are as a player and how you want to, how, what kind of sound you want to make, sure, difficult, because there's a lot of, lot of influence from teachers and from society and everything. Um, and I have to say also in my class, uh, I have a lot of pressure trying to get people jobs. And sometimes I have to say, well, maybe... You have to try this instrument from the class. You can rent it for a time. Let's see if this helps you or if this is better. First thing is, finding an instrument, it must speak to you. It must be something that you like. Secondly, think of the path that you're going down. Is this an intermediate choice or is it something that you really want to spend a lot of time on? Is this something you want to be a professional or not? And then you need to put in the cost equation, of course, also. But, um, yeah, those three factors, absolutely. And I do think it's very important that you also have um, an opinion, maybe two opinions, from maybe from your teacher and somebody else also, to try and see, is this a good instrument? We've had, as we all know, uh, people buying instruments that are absolutely in horrible condition, and there's uh, a lot of controversy for, you know, instruments can be very, very expensive. We've just heard now one hectare bassoon was sold for 80,000 uh, euros. Holy which is absolutely horrible, um, and this is so it keeps pushing the prices up a lot. And I have to say, as me for a teacher, I'm spending quite a lot of time actually trying to find and helping the students with instruments. Also, there's a certain rotation within the class. Also, um, but we also we were very fortunate that we we have a, we have school that actually has some money and they have some interest in what we do. Uh, we had a student who was a second semester who won a principal job in an opera orchestra. Uh, and he didn't have a suitable instrument for that. I knew the first piece he was going to play was Frau uh, und Schatten from, from Strauss, which has a lot of really, really soft, low solos. And I happened to get my hands off a heckle from the U.S. that had been played, uh, I think, in New York also. It was a lovely, really dark 13,000 
And I got this instrument over to Mannheim. I went to the headmaster and said, listen, we have a guy in second semester uh, doing a trial for principal in a, in a major opera house. He doesn't have an instrument, but I got this in my hand. Can you please buy this for the school? Yes, you can, he said. And, of course, I mm. opened my door uh, and hurried to the guy next door and get the stamp. And, of course, uh, the student who got the instrument, he was incredibly uh, happy. Um, and I think he brought a crate of champagne after he trialed it when he got <laughs> administration in the school, which is very nice because they, they totally understood, okay, somebody has great talent. We don't have that kind of instrument right now. Let's go for it. So it was an investment from the school. Mind you, uh, yes, we have had some success with the class, but this is also because of my predecessor who was so serious and people understand, okay, if the student professor says something, we need to listen in the first row, which is great. Course. That's incredible. Amazing. Yeah. One of my favorite questions to ask our guests is, um, will you tell us about a favorite memory you have of a past performance? Sure. Um, there are many, 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 but um, I've had uh, the luxury of playing with an orchestra called Chamber Orchestra of Europe, and that's been it's an incredible orchestra. Uh, they play uh, they're basically collected people from all, all over Europe, and they have um, funding from the from the European Union, and they got great conductors. And uh, some of the last things we played, some of the most uh, exciting things I played with them was with Bernard Haitink, and we did some Beethoven things, and which was which is a little special for them is that it, there's so little rehearsal time, so you have to be so incredibly well prepared. And we did a Beethoven cycle with the week. I uh, remember the second program was Leonora 3, Beethoven 4, and Beethoven 7. So you had like, you know, 30 excerpts just before the break. <laughs> so it was uh, a very, very intense thing. And I remember, you know, this we played it in Concertgebouw, and we played it in Paris. And the last concert was Beethoven 1 and Beethoven 9. So uh, one certainly had a bit of ambition. But I do remember that week very well. It's a very, very special um, week because you were so close to this amazing uh, icon of conducting, Bernard Haitink. And we did the beginning of Beethoven 6. And then he said, oh, can we do that again? I did a really bad job. And I thought, wow, Bernard Haitink, at his peak of his career, he has the heart and has the understanding to stand in front of a musician and say, you know what, let's do that again. That wasn't very good. And... I found it to be such an incredibly humbling moment that we're all in the same boat. We all want to do very well. Uh, and it was just such a, such, he was so much stronger after that, admitting that he didn't do something perfect right away. I thought that was a very special moment. Yeah. What are some of your favorite pieces to play? Um, this can be solo, chamber, orchestral. Oh, that's hard. Um, <laughs> if I can be, I, I really, I really hope I don't sound arrogant with this, but I, I really love playing a uh, different kind of repertoire with different kinds of orchestras. And since I've been very fortunate playing with different orchestras, I do have a, a special feeling of, of certain instruments, a certain repertoire that we play there. And uh, like I said, with the, the Chamber Orchestra of Europe, I really, really loved uh, playing Beethoven because of Haitink and stuff like this. Uh, I played a lot in Gothenburg Symphony, the Swedish National Symphony lately also, 
I love playing Sibelius with them. They're incredibly good at that. It's their heritage somehow. With Danish Radio, I love playing Karl Nilsson. Could never get enough of that, which is their uh, Butterbrot. As you say in German, that's what they eat for breakfast, right? I mean, I don't know any other orchestras that can play Nilsson 5 without mm-hmm. rehearsal. Um, and that was actually one of the first weeks I played with Danish Radio, was all Nielsen symphonies in one week live on TV. And um, I, had, I hadn't played one of them. So um, of course my eyes I didn't I didn't blink once in the performance. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, very pale and I remember the GP the conductor saying so does anybody need anything and I was about to raise my hand and the principal clarinet he took my hand down and he said enjoy the ride. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there wasn't much to do anything different. But that I really loved and Cologne Radio I loved playing like this big gigantic things that we could because such a big orchestra and we played like uh, Wagner Operas Concert Town we played um, huge we played Shostakovich 4 which is like a bassoon festival uh, on tour with Semyon Buchko Beethoven Violin Concert before the break as warm up and then Shostakovich 4 after that was an amazing tour I have to say that was great Jeez. so how, how fortunate am I to be able to play this kind of uh, repertoire with different orchestras and I know that so that's uh I do try to pass on that kind of knowledge also to the students, which is also a very strong link to Roger Bernstein, again, who I have to mention in this, um, because all his teaching was basically revolving around how to play good in the orchestra. And he had the most amazing book where he had quotes from the most famous conductors, and he would say, Ulla, let's do it, let's do Right to Spring the Bula's Way, and the, the Bula's Way, and he would have information from Bula's, from Abado, from Bernstein, Tarkovsky, because he played with these guys, and he collected what they said about these amazing solos. And Tarkovsky, for an instance, had the most incredible one-liner for Tarkovsky VI, where he said, you know, long short notes and short long notes. Mm. So immediately you have the the, the drag, then it relaxes. So these kind of incredible one-liners he had all the time that he could pass on uh, for these important excerpts, and then it gives like such a good and important skeleton for the for the studies. So yeah, but one piece that I do love and I will never get tired of hmm, that is really hard to I. Still, really love to play, which is uh, which I still do, which is I think also very fortunate for the students um, to have an uh, active playing teacher. Uh, I do also like our crazy arrangements that we have in Mannheim. We have several very talented arrangers in the class. They tend to be very difficult. Um, <laughs> um, we that's a little bit of a tradition within the class that for the class concert there will be at least one or two. And salmon things that we played. The last thing we did was uh, Mars from uh, Gustav Holst. Uh, quite tiring and lots of high G's. So, <laughs> fun to do for sure. Yeah, I saw a video one of your students made of, I believe it was the Rite of Spring, an octave higher than written or something like that. <laughs> there's, uh, there's a lot of talent in the class, that's for sure. And uh, but that's also what's what's so great about it. I mean, it's uh, you know, growing up as a bassoon player, you're you're somewhat uh, different. I and mean, if you grow, if you're going to Mannheim as a bassoon player, you're not different at all. I mean, you're part of a crazy crowd, um, and I think that's also what makes it a very fruitful studio. Uh, having all these crazies from their different places coming and finding it into one. 
agreeing on a lot of the same things with basics and reads and stuff like that. But you know, still being able to keep your individuality, it's a good combination, I think. Definitely. That video made me cry a little bit, though, I do have to admit. <laughs> Uh, what advice do you have for um, dealing with performance anxiety or stage fright? That's a good question, too. Well, you've only had good questions. Uh, but um, there is something that Roger Bernstein also said. Why be nervous? Do some practice. And we were just laughing. And we were saying, yeah, well, there is a lot to that. Uh, what's very important is this balance between um, having a plan, sticking to the plan, um, and not improvising too much, especially especially when we're talking auditions and stuff like this, that you really, really stick to the plan, you know, for the first round, second round. The more you go into the, the more the closer you come to getting the job, the more you can open up and the more individual you should be, in my perspective. I mean, in French, you call the first round eliminatoire. I mean, elimination is a horrible word, but, uh, you know, it sounds like you're going to lose your head or it from a guillotine or something, but it has a little bit of that. Um, jumping through the hoops um, and then making it more and more individual as you go. Um, if you have a very, very clear way of what, how you want to play, if you have a very, very clear way of you know how to execute the way you play, um, there is a lot of room for freedom even so in that. So um, we do quite a lot of performance training that the students have to go out of the door in and play right away. Um, I do work a lot with the students also physically finding out how they're feeling before, during, and after. This is very important component for me to be able to work with them. To see, okay, what, what kind of stress do you have? Everybody's different. Some people forget their fingering. Some people think about cooking while playing. Some people just want to leave. Um, and some people are enjoying it and still play horrible. So, I mean, that, that could be, there are so many components there that we need to uh, assess. Um, but, um, of course, since we have this very, very uh, academic way of breathing and, you know, air support, like we do with the drills, there's a lot. It's such a physical way of playing. And this is where I give the maybe the most feedback to the students is that you need to find the right feeling for, A, how you breathe, find the right feeling for how you put the air pressure, where is your tongue point, and anything you put down, uh, like you take the box like that, increases your confidence or increases your feeling of saying, okay, this I, I feel more or less like myself. And we've had students being incredibly nervous, shaking, like really miraculous knees yeah, while playing. It sounded good. So, I mean, of course, ner uh, nerves and anxiety towards playing is something we have to deal with, uh, part of our profession also. But, of course, from a physical point of view, if the person is able to execute something, in a good way, still looking nervous but sounding great, that's a huge step. And slowly and soundly, these things, they, they, they do come together. A lot of people do yoga and stuff like that. I haven't done it myself. I'm sure it's great. Uh, but um, I think there is a very important moment before you play that you do have to compose yourself and think about what it is that you're supposed to do. Switch on your switches for your technique and then let go, really. You really, really need to let go if that's uh, what you have to sit on stage and you're playing a symphony like this. There, and this is a little bit uh, the difference between an audition and a performance in that sense, where a performance you really have to try and let go once you go in on stage and actually play. 
Ula, it has been so motivating and inspiring to talk to you. Um, mm-hmm. If our listeners want to follow up with you, where can they find you on the Internet? There are two major points to go. One point is the, my website, www.ulekristandal.net. Um, there are quite a few um, pieces of information. There's a shop where you can buy the drill book, for instance, if you're interested in this. There is uh, there's some pictures. There's a lot of information about the school in Mannheim. There's a nice little map with all the students having jobs, which is kind of cute. Um, and there's also a link to play with the pro and play with the pro is some, it's uh, teaching videos that I've done quite a few, the suit basics, I've done the Mozart concerto, um, there's an interview and orchestra excerpts. And if you are interested in this, I can highly recommend, uh, these videos. A lot of people across the world have used them. Um, we had a very sweet video from Argentina where a girl had only used these videos and she actually got a job. Uh, and she wrote, the wow. company. she wrote the company said, you know, I only had these lessons, uh, all over the net, which I thought was really nice, of course. And that's where we come into the world of sharing. There is some, uh, I think it costs a little bit, but it's not very expensive. And there's an academic solution for this that a school can buy these videos. We are three bassoon players that do these videos. Uh, I'm in very good company, I have to say. One is Sergio Azzolini, and the other one is Gustavo Nunez, and I do my stuff. And my stuff is then uh, bassoon basics, um, where all the basics basically are, are there, more or less double-tongue, vibrato. Um, and then we have a concerto thing, basically the, the exposition of the Mozart concerto, how to practice it, how to think about it, and orchestra excerpts also. Um then on the webpage, there are some other informations also, but also on Facebook, there's uh, Ulle Kristandal Music Facebook page that has information, once I get to it, <laughs> um, about masterclasses and stuff like that. And that's, uh, yeah, that's something also I would like to add. Uh, maybe in the future I will also come slightly more to the United States uh, mm-hmm. at Colburn teaching, which was great, and I really enjoyed it, and they have an amazing canteen. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I remember wanting to take the, the students for drinks and said, no, no, we've got cards. And I said, what is this place? And I said, that was very impressive. No, but I'd love to come to the States a little more. I have family in the States now, so it's uh, uh, a continent that I haven't been to enough. But um, as you might know, my students have been rather successful being in the States with the Double Ridge Society. I'm, of course, very proud of that and very happy mm-hmm. and uh, hope to see... Yeah, see you guys at IDRS or at some masterclass at some point. Absolutely, and congratulations to your student. Is it uh, Zaro who just won the Young Artist at IDRS? Uh, she was the last one. She won the Young Artist, but we've had two other students from the class winning the big one, which was Sebastian Stevenson, the Swedish guy, and Rodion Tolmachev, the Russian guy, a couple of years ago. So Amazing. We're pretty happy about that, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This has been such an incredible conversation. I can't wait to share it with our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Ula Christian Dahl as much as we did. And if you doubted that we could keep up this kind of quality, our next 
oboe guest is the one, the only, Diana Dougherty of the Sydney Symphony. Bye, 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 bye. In the meantime, you can find us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Double Read Dish. You can go to our website, DoubleReadDish.com, or send us an email at DoubleReadDish at gmail.com. And you can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube.